Well, thanks, team, for leading us in that uh, time of worship and song and reflections around uh, the theme of identity. And if you're new or visiting with us this morning, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And as we dive in this morning, I want you to uh, follow along with me and see if you can remember. I'm going to describe a little opening scene from a movie and see if you can remember maybe which uh, movie this comes out of. So uh, it was released in 2002, and in the opening sequence of this movie, a mysterious man is pulled from the water by a fishing boat captain. And there's two bullets found in his neck. Well, you guys are quick. Wow. Two bullets in his back. He doesn't know who he is. This mysterious capsule in his hip. But he has absolutely no memory whatsoever. The born identity. So this begins the franchise of movies uh, by, uh, based on loosely by books by author Robert Ludlum. It grossed, the four movies together grossed over $638 million dollars. Uh, domestically at the box office. And this kind of began it with uh, Matt Damon. And the movie kind of goes through this series of questions about identity and asks, what does it mean if you actually forget who you are? How would you go about reconstituting or discovering who you really are? And today we're going to launch into a series where we're going to spend seven weeks exploring this notion of identity. And we're going to ask questions about each of our own unique identities and what that means. Now, when you think of your identity, we asked this question on our Facebook page at Jericho Ridge this last week. When you think about your identity, what factors have shaped your identity? When I think of my identity, there's a huge spectrum of influences that come to my mind. There's there's cultural factors, right? I am Canadian, and uh, there's geographic factors. I was born in southern Alberta. When I was three, I moved to a small town in northern BC. When I, I spent all of my teenage years in suburban Toronto and then moved out here for school and have been here in Langley for a long time. Each of those actual geographic locations shape something of who I am as a person. There's temperament factors that shape our identities. Uh, I'm an extrovert. So my identity revolves around not being quiet and not spending too much time alone. There's vocational components. And for a lot of us, uh, vocational components, uh, who we are, becomes sometimes inseparable in unhealthy ways from what we do as individuals. There's unique imprints uh, on our lives by our family of origin, some of them Uh, for good. Some of them are painful, and some of them are just plain confusing that take most of our lives to kind of sort out. And these things, and many, many, many more, actually fuse together to create your unique identity and my unique identity. So as we launch into this series, I want you to think, what is what are the unique things that have influenced you and have actually contributed to shape your identity, what makes up your identity. And here's the premise that we're going to drive at in this teaching series, and that is this, that if you are a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, that there ought to be things that mark your identity that are unique 
and distinct. Now, that's not to say that some of the things that we talk about during our times together are not going to apply to people who don't share that perspective, but it's to suggest that the Scripture actually mandates or calls some things out of us, or maybe a better way of saying is imprints certain things on us, or it's expected that certain things would be imprinted in our lives that are rich and deep and have the capacity to change not only our, our lives, but the lives of those around us. So this question of identity is what we're going to explore together. Now, when I was in high school, uh, my maternal grandmother came to live with us for a period of time. And she was in the midst of over a decade-long struggle uh, with dementia and Alzheimer's, a struggle that she eventually lost several years ago. And her time with us produced both some very uh, sad moments in our family, but also some just quite hilarious moments in the midst of that experience as well. I can remember a time when she came out of the bathroom and she said to me, because by this time she was wrestling and trying to remember names and identity, she said, young man, come with me. I said, all right, sure, come, come in here, come in here. I need you to speak with this woman. There is an impertinent woman who is in the bathroom window and she is mimicking every gesture, every word that I say, everything that I do. And it's very distressing to me and I can't get her to quit. Well, of course, she was seeing her reflection in the mirror and she was confused about this and really wanted me to kind of put a stop to this because she'd lost that ability to actually recognize herself in the mirror. And some of you have been there with members of your family or people whom you love. My grandma, over time, lost not only the ability to identify us, but also to identify herself. She went through this process of really disintegration as a person. And eventually she lost really her own identity. And ever since that time with my grandma, I've wondered about this question of identity. What is it that makes a person who they are? What holds those parts together to make us unique? And what if parts of them are fragmented or you begin to lose pieces of them? What happens to your identity? That's what we're going to explore together. And philosophers and really smarty-pants people put this into a category that you might not actually expect. At first glance, it seems like an odd thing to talk about when you're talking about this notion of identity, but the notion of a formal relationship to oneself, as philosophers would say, is known as, or under the heading of, integrity. Integrity, when we think of it, we usually think about it in terms of speaking truthfully, but philosophers and psychologists speak of the integrity of one's identity. And by which they mean that integrity is a matter of making the various parts of your personality into a harmonious and intact whole, an integrous unit. It's the correspondence of intention and action fused together in a way that is integrous or that a person is said to have integrity. 
When we talk about integrity, we're usually talking about someone's actions that we can observe, that they're being true to themselves or that they have integrity in the way that they live. And that's true, but it's not all of it. The, the biblical notion uh, of this has its roots much deeper. And so we want to look there this morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our intentions, our actions are rooted in our intentions. And our intentions are rooted in our identity. And so it's a bit of a different way of thinking about this notion of identity. So we're going to explore together the components of a fully integrated life. One where my actions flow out of my intentions very naturally, and those intentions are rooted in a sense of my identity. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. And these verses are written by Peter. Peter is a close friend and disciple of Jesus. Peter himself underwent a significant identity shift in his life. He began his career as a very rough, around-the-edges fisherman, and he ended up becoming one of the leaders in the early Christian movement in the first century in the city of Jerusalem. And so in this book, in the New Testament that bears his name, he's writing to people, and he's writing to people who are in danger of losing their identity because they're living scattered all over the world. And he writes to them as foreigners and strangers scattered amongst the nations and says to them, I need to remind you of a few things that are core and primary to your identity as a person of faith. And so in chapter 2, he starts off and he wants to contrast their identity with those around them in their culture. So follow along with me as we read First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12. Peter says in this contrast statement, you, if you're a person who says that you follow Jesus, you're not like that. You are, here's identity statements, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And so, dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, and then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they ought to see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. It's a whole bunch of identity-orienting statements in those few short verses. Once Peter said you have no identity, and now you have come into God's family. You've undergone an identity shift. Philosophers would call this ha- making, having made an identity-conferring commitment. It's an action that you take that's rooted in your volition or in your intention that actually radically shifts your identity as a person. So it starts actually and works its way backwards from action to intention and down 
into that place of identity. And this is what Peter's driving at and he's describing, and he's using this whole pile of metaphors to try and get at the same point. And this point is that if you, in your life, have made a volitional commitment, a, a decision, a choice to say yes to Jesus, whatever language you want to use, you've crossed the line of faith, you've asked Jesus into your heart, you've come into the kingdom of heaven, you've been transferred from darkness to light, whatever, whatever language you want to use, if you've said yes to God, then you have undergone a fundamental shift in your identity at that very core place of who you are. Something now marks you at a soul level that is different and unique from those that have not made that identity-conferring commitment. And so Peter goes through and he's trying to describe what those things might be that mark the person's new identity. So let's look at what the text says. The first statement he makes in verse 9, there is that one of differentiation. Other people may do these things, he says. Other people may practice deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy. Other people may explore the claims of Christ and reject him. That's what he's talked about in the early section of chapter 2. But not you. He says you are not like that because you have a different identity. These are the things that make you unique. Firstly, you're a chosen people. You've been brought into God's family, his forever family. The Bible often uses the language of adoption to describe this moment. That is, by expressing faith in God, your family identity has actually shifted. You belong to a new family. And with that, belonging to a new family, came things that made you unique. This also comes with uh, royal priesthood language, he uses, nobility and access to God as king. We were in England uh, this summer, and as we were standing outside of Buckingham Palace, this uh, old lady came out and was escorted out of Buckingham Palace on this golf cart, and kind of, you know, then she came outside of the gates. And I thought, oh, this is exciting. Maybe this is somebody important. Well, it turns out she had just paid extra money for the tour. And so she had been, but I, I kind of thought to myself, it got me thinking, I wonder what it would take, like, to go from being outside here at the gates to getting an appointment with the queen. I wonder, like, could it be done? If so, who would you have to be? Like, who would you have to know? How would you go about doing that? I mean, it's got to be more than just paying the extra money for the tour, obviously. Like, you, you know, you don't just sort of waltz in there. And I started thinking, well, who gets to kind of just walk in to Buckingham Palace? I thought, well, if you're a member of the House of Windsor, if you're a part of the Queen's family, of course, you just get to walk in to the House and Buckingham Palace or wherever they are at that moment. You don't need an appointment. You just walk right in because you're part of the family. And that's what Peter is driving at here. If you're a member of the royal priesthood, you're connected with the king, describing king language about King Jesus, then you don't need a fancy appointment. You have access in a different way than someone that's standing outside the gate of Buckingham Palace 
and looking in. Since you're part of the family, you come right in. So not only has your family status changed, not only has your vertical status changed, but your horizontal status, your relational status with people around you has also undergone a fundamental shift and uses the language of nationality to describe this. Remember earlier I said that our identities are somewhat shaped by our nationality and whomever issues our passport. But Peter here is appealing to this very same notion and saying, you know what, when you undergo that identity-conferring commitment that you make, if you have chosen to do that, you actually have a new kind of relationship with those around you. Because your identity and your loyalties are not primarily shaped by culture anymore. Your values and priorities are shaped and reoriented around the kingdom of God. People whose identities outside the kingdom of God, that you would maybe not necessarily share aspects of that identity with, or that you would openly be engendered in hostility with, now you're actually changed in your relationship with them. I think about conflicts in Africa between different tribes and Hutus and Tutsis and Rwanda and the way in which if those two members of those tribes become people who are part of God's family, they put aside those tribal identities and the animosity that they would hold and they would be part of God's family. Think about blacks and whites or people that hold differing Uh, theological perspectives, complementarianism, egalitarianism, people that hold different, even nuanced cultural perspectives here in Canada, French Canadians and English speakers, south of the border, our friends, Republicans, Democrats, those who are well-resourced, those who are economically disadvantaged. In God's new family, if you've made that commitment, you put aside those culture-orienting identities and you join together as one, as a body as a family, as citizens in the kingdom, and therefore your new loyalties and new identities are shaped by your sense of belonging. A new identity has been etched upon your heart that supersedes or, should we say, undergirds all of those other elements of your identity. So if you've given your life to God, you are God's possession And so this new sense of belonging needs to mark you. Once you had, Peter says, no identity, but now these things are true of you. So he goes through all of these different examples to try and make the exact same point. What is he driving at? He's saying, listen, none of these aspects of your identity can be earned. They are all supernatural gifts of God's grace. They're all fingerprints of God's mercy on your life. You cannot work your way into this new identity. You can't do a whole bunch of great stuff and God look at you and say, huh, that's interesting. They seem to be really, you know, they seem to really have it together. I would love them in my new family. And this is why the issue of integrity identity is important. Because when most of us think about our lives, we live in the realm of actions, and intentions. And so we've been taught that when we do the right things, that 
in our culture, there's this notion, if I do the right things, that that'll actually bleed down far enough into who I am that I'll actually become or I'll start to think of myself as a good person. And what this line of thinking suggests is that we hope against hope or we've told ourselves that our identity can actually be shifted by the things that we do. Good behavior can filter down deep enough into our lives to change our identity. But what Peter is suggesting here and driving hard at is that this approach is completely bankrupt. You see, I can do virtuous actions, but they may not actually touch my identity. They may not come from a place of my identity. Let me give you an example. When we were in Africa this summer, we saw all kinds of people doing all kinds of good for all kinds of people. Now, a lot of people, when you would talk to them, were doing it you know, for very good reasons. Some of them, you got this very distinct impression that they were just doing their bit for the poor or doing their bit for Africa. You see, they were just trying to ease their guilt. Their actions, kind of, you, if you just looked at it on the level of actions, you'd kind of go, hey, they're doing great stuff. But their intentions was really not all that. It was a little bit polluted. There was, there was just, I need to ease my guilt. So I'm going to go and help these people who really need it because, you know, I could probably have enough to be able to help them. And here in North America, this is true as well. Some people spend their whole lives keeping track mentally of all of the good stuff that they do in order to make an attempt to outweigh the bad stuff and therefore get into God's good books. They're hoping against hope that when God judges the world, all he looks at on the scales is actions. But Peter is saying this is not actually true, that God cares deeply about our identities. Because if you think about just actions, think about the level of dis integration or disintegrity that that approach suggests. It suggests that I could do all kinds of stuff but not care about it at all, right? Peter, they talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I could do all of these wonderful things. I could give everything I have to the poor but if I don't have love, if that's not my motivation, it's empty. It, it's nothing gained in that. If I'm a person Who I am has to reflect my actions, and my actions also need to connect in some deep and profound way with who I am because the reality is what we do flows out of who we are. And if I'm a person who has been touched deeply by the mercy of God and God has imprinted compassion into my life because I've received compassion and mercy from him, therefore, out of that, then can flow a compassion to help others and the poor and those on the margins, the sick and the oppressed. And therefore, when I serve in that way, it's flowing just out of who I am because I've received that identity from God. When someone serves at the Gateway of Hope or builds a house in Guatemala or if you treat your employees generously and work with justice, these are things that are natural. They flow out of you naturally if you are a person who's been marked very deeply by compassion because they're linked with your identity. And what Peter is trying to say here is when who you are, when that change happens fundamentally at the level of your identity, 
then you know that your actions are not just in a place where you're earning grace. You can't behave your level, behave your way into deep and meaningful change of your identity. It's all a work of God's grace when we give up our life, when we step out of darkness into light, his marvelous light. But it's all connected and goes back to our identity. And so as I grow to understand my identity more and more, this then grows that next reality in my heart. It grows better intentions, more fresh and holistic and pure and God-honoring intentions, healthy desires rooted in a healthy identity. And so in in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, when you are marked by all of those things, you want to show others the goodness of God in your life because God's goodness has marked your identity, who you are as a person at such a deep level that it just begins to touch your intentions, your will, your volition. Because I have fundamentally experienced at the core I am as a person, God's goodness, then it begins to flow out. Now, there's a problem here though, and that is that this level of intentions is where the battle is fought. Because if you're like me, and I'm guessing that you are, you are not always the shining model of your new identity in Christ. Peter explains why this is true in verse 11. Well, for new creations of a part of God's family, all of these things, why doesn't that just sort of naturally bubble out of us all of the time? Well, Peter says in verse 11, he says, listen, at that level of identity, then a level of intention, Worldly desires rage against your soul in this middle zone. And the battle rages on in our lives, day after day, week after week, moment after moment. Because even after my identity has shifted, my intentions and my desires do not always come along for the ride. My identity might be I'm a new creation in Christ and all things, new, old things have gone, new things have come, but yet... Stuff still comes out of my mouth and out of my heart and lives in my mind and my heart that does not reflect that. Since I'm part of God's family, chosen by him, loved with access and privileges, I don't always act like it. And it's because, frankly, I don't always intend to act like it. Since we were talking about the royal family earlier, let's pick on them for another minute. Remember last year when Prince Harry did his little tour here in North America, in Las Vegas in particular? And uh, he was photographed widely as behaving very badly. And people were outraged. They could not believe that someone would go to Vegas and do these types of things. Why were they upset? They were upset because fundamentally they felt like for better or for worse, I mean, they could go to Vegas and behave like that and think nothing of it. But if the prince went to Vegas and behaved like that, somehow that was incongruous with who he was and what he was supposed to represent. And I think that serves as a bit of an illustration of this point. Even though you and I might be royal priests, I may not always act like it. I still mess I still wrestle with messed up intentions and actions. I still complain about things that are no, no, of no importance whatsoever. I still stretch the truth to create favorable impressions in the lives of others. I still let myself get angry or bitter at comments that others make. 
I still get jealous of what other people did this summer or how they look or what they wear, and then I overspend to keep up. Though my identity may have undergone a fundamental shift, my intentions and therefore my actions are not fully integrated with my new identity. And therefore, I'm beginning really to forget who I am. I'm disintegrated as a person. I lack integrity as a person in those moments. And so here's the point that Peter, I think, is driving at in these verses. He's saying to us, you know what? Sin is not just not living or acting properly. It's not about that just living at that level of action and identifying that. He says sin is actually consciously choosing to live in non-congruence with who I am. The image that comes to my mind here is uh, from the world of structural integrity. With structural integrity, something may look okay, a building may look okay on the outside, but on the inside, if it's weak, at the level of structural integrity, at some point, when enough stress hits that, it's going to fall apart. We got an email this week uh, describing just such an occurrence. Uh, This past March, we had a team, as we do every year, that went down to Guatemala. And some of the members of our team went into a home to do food distribution. And they uh, were in this home occupied by a family, this wonderful pair of grandparents. And uh, when they took it upon themselves to raise their grandsons, uh, Julio, who's 11 and in third grade, and Jose, who's nine and in second grade, when their grandsons were abandoned, and so our team visited this family, and it was filled, this, their little shack in the back, their house was filled wall to wall with stuff that they had collected out of the dump, and uh, they were seamstresses, so they were hoping to be able to stitch some of this stuff together and sell it to be able to make a living for themselves. And anyway, the plan was that a team was going to go down uh, from the States, and this last week was going to build uh, a new floor and a new roof for their house. But the people that we work with in partner, uh, in country there, uh, Chris and Donna, said, you know what, um, there's a guy down in that area, Pastor Juan, whom we've met and worked with before. And so he said, Pastor Juan, just go check on them and make sure that they're okay. And Pastor Juan and the volunteer had been able to arrange, uh, their house just had tons of, of stuff around it. So there's no way the build team could get in and actually redo the roof on their house. And so he said, worked with the mayor's office, was able to get uh, a front-end loader in there to try and kind of clear some of this stuff away. Well, Pastor Juan went to see the house, and as a front-end loader was kind of moving, he was watching the house, and it was kind of shaking and tremoring. And Pastor Juan said, uh, hey, listen, I I think we need to get out of the house. Like, just let the loader do its work, and then we can figure this out. And the family was saying, no, 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 we're fine. We need to get everything out of the house, all of these things we've collected. You know, it's important. And Pastor Juan felt really impressed very strongly by the Holy Spirit. Get that family out of the house. So he got them out of the house, and not but two minutes later, from the vibrations of the loader working just up the street, the whole house collapsed. It had no structural integrity, to be able to hold it together. And so they began um, to just use the the loader there to be able to clear the whole house 
away. And the neighbors came over and they thanked Pastor Juan. They said, we've been worried for this family. And uh, even when the house collapsed, there were two snakes that came slithering out of the house when it fell. And the whole site was then able to be leveled. And instead of kind of building on a shaky kind of wall that was there and just putting in a new roof and kind of cosmetically changing the house and giving them some shelter from the rain instead of those tarps that they had, they actually were able to assess it and say, you know what, it had no structural integrity whatsoever. It wasn't going to hold. And so it needed to just be moved out of the way in order that something new could be built. And so the team then from the States was able to start fresh. They started their work this last week and uh, family now has a new house that they can live in and provide for their family. But the point I want to make is that a new roof and a new floor in that would have been just cosmetic because the building lacked fundamental integrity. It wasn't held together well. And this text in 1 Peter is driving at the same thing with your life and my life. It's asking questions of us and forcing us to ask questions of ourselves and to say, does my life possess a kind of integration, a kind of integrity? So the vision of an integrated life. But an integrated life, a fully integrated life, can only occur when it's built on your identity. It's built on a solid foundation. So it can only occur when you understand your identity and then you aspire each day with each action to live in congruence with who you are. Now you may be here today And you may not be in a place where you've invited God into your life. Your identity might still be broadly defined by other commitments that you have made. And I want you to know that this is a place of welcome and hospitality for you, for the journey and for exploration together. You might want to take us up on that offer of a meal every Wednesday night at Alpha and explore some of the things. You might want to explore uh, some of the things that we talk about at Fusion with student ministries And you might want to talk to somebody here. But here's what I want you to hear today, if that's your commitment. That the door is always open for you to become a part of God's family. And to be clear, it's not a flippant decision. No one should ever change their identity and that core part of who they are flippantly. That would be like switching your allegiances. It'd be like Kim and Mike Olenek on September 15th suddenly deciding that they were going to cheer for the Flames or for San Jose or like worse yet Chicago or something horrible like that. It just wouldn't happen. But if you're here and you're, a, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear clearly that living the Christian life is not a behavioral modification project. That's not what we're interested in at Jericho. It is an identity-conferring commitment that will reshape your life at a very soul architectural level. And so I urge you not to undertake it if you don't understand the implications of that clearly. If you're like me, and you know that at some place in your life, you need mercy and forgiveness, you want to know that your future is secure because of a new sense of belonging, then maybe today is your day. But don't make the decision cavalierly. In a few minutes, we're going to respond in prayer. And I want you to go over and respond and talk to the prayer team about what you've heard today. And I want you to ask them, what would it look like to build my life on a solid foundation?
If you're here today, though, and you have made, at some point in your journey, an identity-conferring commitment to Christ, my deep prayer for you and my deep prayer for myself is that as we begin to build our identities as people, we would build them and shape them on things that would last, things that would have structural integrity, that you would begin to and continue to allow God to shape who you are as you engage with things like scripture intake and prayer, that you would make an effort to submit your disposition, your intentions, your actions to the Lord. And that over time, this would actually reshift and build your identity. And that identity would give root to new intentions, and that new intentions would give root to fresh actions. It's like a tree with strong roots in the identity. And then it grows a strong trunk of, ident- of intentions. And then the fruit of that is actions in your life. And this will result in growing more and more into congruence with who you are. And people in our world today are drawn inextricably to people who possess that kind of integrity, that kind of integration in their life, that their identity, their intentions, and their actions are aligned and in congruence with each other. There's a sense in those types of persons' lives of increasing confidence, increasing joy, increasing peace in the midst of extraordinarily stressful situations because it's rooted in who they are. And as we close today, Perry's going to come and he's going to lead us in a song of reflection. And this is actually a song about the life of Peter, the author of that scriptural text. And it's about those times in Peter's life when he had that experience of not getting it right, of going off course, of experiencing disintegration in his life. And the song invites you and I to consider who we are and who we are becoming. And what it's really asking and what I want to ask of you is how integrated is your life? How would you know? What are the things that mark your life that would demonstrate a level of integration? And this song is an invitation to get back to places of healing, forgiveness, mercy, and grace again. And so maybe for you, as Perry and the team lead us in this response song, you don't need to sing along with the words. Uh, Just a song to create a moment for you to be able to reflect on your heart 